Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. And today I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Helen Small. Professor Helen Small is the Merton Professor of English uh, Language and Literature at the University of Oxford and a fellow of Merton College in Oxford. She is the author of books such as The Valley of Humanities the Long and The Long Life. She has written widely on literature and philosophy and public, moral, uh, and public moralism and the relationship between humanities, sciences and social sciences. And today she's here to talk with us about a wonderful book she published with Oxford University Press in 2020 called The Function of Cynicism at the Present Time. Helen, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm sorry about the chimes of the bells in the background. I'm in the middle of Oxford, so I can't get rid of those. They'll come in every quarter. <laughs> that gives you more beauty. <laughs> exactly. Um, so to start with, can you please uh, introduce yourself a little and talk about your area of expertise and also tell us how this book came about and what made you decide to write this book, The Function of Cynicism at the Present Time? It's a very uh, timely topic. Sure. Um, so my role at the moment is I'm the Merton Professor of English Language and Literature at Oxford. I've taught in the English faculty here since 1996, um, and English has always been uh, my academic area, but one where right through Really, from my doctoral work onwards, I've been at the border with other disciplines, so initially with history and then medical history. But increasingly, especially around the time I started working on old age um, for the previous book that you mentioned, The Long Life, I've been interested in the boundaries between crossing the boundaries between English and philosophy, especially moral philosophy and philosophy of reasoning. Mm -hmm. uh, so cynicism, uh, there are lots yeah. of different definitions of cynicism. How? how how do you define cynicism? How, or let's say, how was it defined in classic time, and how do you approach this topic? Sure, I, I really didn't ask you your, your first question. Actually, how did I get interested in it? So, so let me start mm. there, and then I'll define yeah. it for you. So, I. I, my previous book was about the value of the humanities, and it was a kind of critical intervention in the debate about how we should advocate or how we can hope to advocate best for the status of humanities subjects and for their public funding um, support for them more generally. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the quite idealistic statements we tend to rely on. Um, and that set me thinking about the importance of how we articulate the values we hold. So not, not so much the content of the values, though obviously that's that's crucial, but the pitch and the temper and the extent of the claims that we make for them. And I became interested in the humanities um, way of dealing with an easy kind of cynicism about their claims. So for example, what do we do when other people say to us, even if they're just saying it as a as a as a jest, you know, a joke or a kind of provocation to us? You know, why do you need so much money? You could just do it anyway. If you want to read books or write about them, do it in your own time. You know, that's what plenty of of writers, novelists, poets mm -hmm. do. Or, for example, you know, you would say you need support for the amenities, don't you? Because you're uh, you're a professor. You know, you're paid to do it. So, so you've got a, a degree of self interest in the subject before you even start. And it seemed to me that that kind of abrasive confrontation 
can be just light touch on what we do anyway in the course of an ordinary conversation, but it can also be quite a, a difficult public challenge to counter, especially if you hold rigidly to the idea that you've got to state your values and hold by them and, and can't be flexible in their articulation. So I wanted to start thinking about the degree of latitude we can allow ourselves when we try to advocate or we try to hold the positions that we do really mm. um, set value by. Um, how are we going to defend those in an increasingly difficult public um, realm of, of discussion where other people are uh, able to go to the cynic position quite quickly and freely and, and we have to be tough enough to answer back. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of intervention, if you like, starts from a, a very loose definition of modern cynicism where uh, if you take, take it back to the OED or whatever dictionary you choose, you're likely to find some kind of version of cynicism is a casting of doubt on the motives that guide right conduct. In other words, mm-hmm. You look at what somebody says they're doing, why they say they're doing it, and instead of um, admitting or allowing the strong or good motive that they ascribe to it, you go low. So, for example, I say that you're making a sizable donation to the rebuilding of Notre Dame because you care about the architectural and religious Mm. heritage of Paris. You see it as the shared property of everyone who cares for craftsmanship, layered culture Mm. and experience of humanity, blah, blah. I say, no, you're not. You're doing it because you want to offset some of the more unsavory aspects of the way you've acquired your wealth or you want your name attached to the donation. So there's ego involved. In other words, where you tried to pitch high, I, the cynic, pitch low. I say it's the basis of what you're doing is as most human action is, thinks the cynic, Mm -hmm. self-interest or ego or Mm self-protection. The complexity of modern cynicism is that we've got to this kind of loose definition by way of a a much richer philosophical history, which anybody who's read philosophy will will be aware of already. So what I'm saying is is really pretty basic here. The word derives from ancient philosophical cynicism, um, from the sayings and doings of the original cynics of Greek antiquity. So that's Antisthenes is often said to be the first. The most characterful and central really is Diogenes of Sinope, Crates, Hipparchia, and interesting one, female, and then their followers up into the Roman Empire of the late fourth century. So it's a, a really loose collection of charismatic figures rather than a school of philosophers. Mm. They're often thought of as a branch of the Socratic tradition, um, but they're they're particularly important because they revolutionised moral discourse in their own time by insisting on the animal nature of human beings. Um, so part of what makes them charismatic is that uh, typically they sought independence from con- conventional material desires. And by being independent of luxury, wealth, nice house, all that kind of thing, they sought freedom from emotional disturbance. Mm. So were shameless in the way they lived. They were compared dogs, kinase from which they de- uh, from which they derive their name, pissing, satisfying their sexual needs in public. And the ultimate goal is purging unnecessary and disturbing thoughts through tough reasoning, good reasoning, getting rid of all the clutter that impedes clear thinking. Mm. So it's quite a close match between the the way of life that's pursued, um, really stripped back, simplified, taken back to nature or a particular idea of nature Mm. and the form of speech practices, which are biting, um, stripped back, uh, contestatory. Um, it, it sort of, if you like, forcefully impoverished and impoverishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I quite, I, I quite like the cover of the book. It's like a modern Dionysus uh, Sinope, right? There's this homeless guy surrounded by dogs, but it's this, but it's in modern times. He's listening to radio. He's trying to tune in to radio channel, and there are cars in the background. Yep, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it looks sort of 1970s, doesn't it? It's a transistor radio and it's got a yeah. rather bent um, signal, you know, aerial on it. So the idea is that he's trying to get a better signal and nobody's listening, which I like. So he's on the, the edge of the modern marketplace. Um, and his only audience really is the dogs. Um, so that so there are lots of another joke there is that the the shack, the sort of makeshift shack that he's sitting in, includes Osram light bulbs. So that goes back to one of the famous stories about Diogenes wandering around in a marketplace in the middle of the day with a lit lantern, saying, "Can anyone show me a, a, a man?" It's, it's a difficult sentence to translate, but basically, it's, "Can you can you show me anyone capable of living in the way that a natural human being should live?" Implicit answer, no. <laughs> did, did you have this uh, picture commissioned because it matches perfectly with the story of the book or you just found it by accident somewhere? I just found it by accident hunting oh. online, look, looking as one does with covers, looking for free images. And I thought this mm. is the only thing that's that's not in there that I'd love to get in there is some kind of challenging of the of the white, you know, the white male central figure. Mm. But it, it did everything else so beautifully that I went yeah. with it. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, it seems to be still in the artist's collection. So my, my partner <laughs> offered to buy it for my birthday, but I thought... <laughs> Maybe we'll go back to that idea. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's talk about another aspect of the book. In the book, you see, you say that you treat cynicism as both a philosophical and also a psychological phenomenon. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So at the reason that we go back to that philosophical heritage, though clearly nobody has lived as a cynic for for centuries, um, is that it still carries the basic characterization. So what's happening when we talk about cynicism, when we identify someone as a cynic, much more likely that you identify someone else as a cynic than you identify yourself. Is so you're saying this is someone who is attacking or devaluing what's 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 current in your culture or your way of thinking about morality, chipping away at it, in danger of doing some damage to it. Mm. And that can bring with it all that philosophical, um, uh, if you like, baggage in a, in a positive sense of baggage of, of wanting to challenge convention, to challenge authority, to make you think the tough thoughts about what's what's true and, mm. and what's just conventionally claimed. But as this as the word has gone down the centuries, it's been repurposed and, if you like, diluted or loosened into a description of a particular kind of psychology. So what we broadly mean by it now is that somebody has a psychological tendency to cast doubt on the motives of others or to to assume that they operate out of bad or low motives rather than high. And we can get there's a lot of good writing. And I decided early on that the book would just need to deal with that as succinctly as it can, rather than rewrite the historical story about how we get there. But there are there are clearly important moments historically around early modern and enlightenment rationalism, how they pick up the cynic tradition again and, and use it in order to make claims for the demands, the tough demands of reason um and needing a fearless disregard for the conventional respect attached to for example religious and political authorities and great writing including a, a wonderful book by louisa shea on the french enlightenment tradition yeah. and its intimacy with cynicism so so over the 19th and 20th centuries what you see is a casualization of of cynicism of the word cynicism and it sort of drifts into the common use we have now where it means a willingness to cast doubt on normative thinking about public morality or social commitments or shared values and tastes. And what 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 interested me where I felt I had a more original job to do, if you like, was by digging into the psychological literature, um, you know, seeing what psychologists and psychoanalysts have said about it. And, and there, too, it's really a, a very 
fixed um, uh, standardized course characterization, a particular type. So no psychologist thinks that anyone is a pure cynic. There would be no such thing. It's a, a particular disposition that gets activated as part of a broader psychological mm -hmm. tendency. Some of the best writing about it is is Freud. Many people would have read um, the book on jokes and the unconscious, where he treats cynical jokes as one kind of what he calls tendentious joking or giving pleasurable vent to feelings of violent hostility that's forbidden by law. So he's especially interested in anti-Semitic and misogynistic jokes. He's, he's got a, a great sense of their anti-institutional thrust. Um, you know, jokes about marriage targeting its constraint on liberty, you know, imagining a world in which that constraint could be loosened. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, um, and whether you whether you take it through the um, the literature on psychological typecasting and the role it plays in modern um, business and organisational thought, sometimes, or whether you go into the broader literature about psychology as itself a way of casting doubt on the motives that drive us. Mm. There's this quite a rich tradition of thinking about cynicism as a component in our thinking about minds and how they work and and how they respond to the challenges of conventional or normative ways of thinking and behaving. Uh, and I came across this phrase in your, this kind of sentence in your introduction, cynicism's anti-institutional forms of charismatic authority. Well, what do you mean by this phrase? I mean that the cynic is by disposition. Um, you know, if if you if if your mode of thinking is that you challenge, you you um, you want to cast doubt on conventional authority the moment you see it, then you are bound to be anti-institutional. So your job is going to be, even if it's a self-appointed job, calling out the institutional investment in in norms or processes. Um, so forth. So again, if you go back to the humanities work that I'd been doing before, it seemed to me that if the humanities couldn't confront and answer cynic suspicions about the degree to which they have an investment in professional structures that have made them historically much more central to the operation of the university than they have, then they weren't going to be fit to answer the questions that are being asked of them. Um, the very first cynics, um, I think I passed over this really quickly, are not associated with schools. They're sort of free-ranging troublemakers, if you like, who operate around the market square and dip in or out of it. There's a there's a reading in the introduction of the book of a, a short story that I found by Gavin Guy Davenport. It's a, it's a beautiful short story imagining Antisthenes, the first cynic, as a totally over-the-top old ham of a teacher breaking the mold of the school. And I love it because it taps into that strain of cynicism that's targeting intellectual self-regard. And that's that's the lovely thing about these extremely clever philosophical thinkers but with an acute antenna for the way in which self-interest can can inhabit even the highest thinking we do, you know, that temptation to take your own intelligence too seriously. So if anyone wants to follow up that story, it's a tour de force of, of style, a sort of orotund meeting the silly, as gears clashing, it's very Joycean. Mm. And it, it gets you thinking about how cynicism doesn't respect the rules by which much educational conversation, especially the kind that honours the Socratic tradition operates, it's, you know, it, it tunes us into something that's prepared to be much more dramatically confrontational rather than respectful. It's not in dialogue. It doesn't really expect a response. It's it's invested in the one liner as a put down. So it's the, it's the vehicle, if you like, of the, the bad student or the student who's difficult to control, the really clever student who's breaking the rules or the professor who's breaking the rules. Mm. And uh, is it correct to assume that um... Cynicism has shifted from being a, so, a form of social criticism 
in the past to a form of a nihilistic skepticism that is characteristic of our present time? I think there's a lot of writing, especially if you like a kind of um, popular um, political and psychological writing that takes up that that view. And my book doesn't take that mm. view. If you like, the point I started from was observing the way in which we, any of us, operate when we're teaching or when we're just in conversation about things that matter to us. And it seemed to me that cynicism is still absolutely a live term. It describes something that we recognize happening and that still upsets people and that still has a role to play in um, tuning philosophical debate and political debate and helping us gauge, if you like, the credibility of, of the values that we're claiming or the, mm. uh, you know, the statements we're making on behalf of things we care about. The most important voice in the philosophical, philosophical conversation putting the point you just made is, is obviously Peter Sloterdijk, um, whose doctoral thesis in Germany, The Critique of Cynical Reason, had a huge impact on critical philosophy critical theory in Germany when it first appeared in 1983. It took quite a long time to enter the English and American um, discussion, so I wasn't really aware of it until um, early 2000s. Um, a lot of Sloterdijk's work has been translated since that time. Um, and one of my problems with that book, it's, it's a really brilliant, I think it was a PhD book originally, it's a tour de force piece of arguing in and against the conventional form of the doctoral thesis is that it is overstated. It means to be overstated. It's a it's a powerful performance piece in its own right. Um, mm -hmm. So some of my resistance to the to the adoption of that argument is political. It seems to be manifestly untrue that modern politics has completely run aground in a bog of cynicism. Mm -hmm. But it also seems to be manifestly untrue that cynicism no longer has the ability to upset or goad its audiences. So look at the debate on climate change, for example. There's a lot of cynicism around, but there's also a lot of action. And there's a ubiquitous sense that we need to get the level of our optimism, our pessimism mm -hmm. right or things will go badly wrong, or look what happens when, you know, war on Ukraine, war in Ukraine yeah, yeah. comes into the picture. Yet again, there's a lot of cynicism around, but in that, you know, the central fighting for, you know, for, for a country's right to exist, cynicism yeah. disappears from, from that <laughs> central place that operates on the edges. Yeah, 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 you're right. Uh, I, I think you're a huge fan of Frederick Nietzsche. He's quite prominent in the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's talk about uh, how Nietzsche treats uh, Di uh, Diogenes of Sinope in his um, The Gay Science. How, so how the does simple he answer treat? Is, yeah. yeah, the Go simple on, answer is he treats it in the spirit of burlesque. So the most concentrated example, the one people are most likely to be familiar with, is the way Diogenes appears as de Tolemensch, or the crazy man in the gay science. So this is the man who staggers into the into the square and proclaims the death of God and completely disconcerts his audience. It's it's a great piece of internally framed performative writing. So it's, it's one of the larger chunks of uh, you know extended performative prose in the gay science. And it's replaying that anecdote that I mentioned earlier about Diogenes searching the public square looking for anyone capable of understanding and living in the knowledge of what it means to be human. So what you get this time over is a new Diogenes declaring the death of the old belief system, belief in God that underpinned the culture's value system for hundreds of years. The point of the scene is that's hardly new news in the later 19th century. You know, we've had that kind of skepticism around for a very long time. 
the whole scene the whole scene is completely over the top it's garrulous it's stagey it's it's not it's not itself cynical in in the sense of being a, a pared down confrontation there's a point in the scene at which um this new diogenes crazy man throws away his lantern like a gimmick that's that's you know expended its its usefulness and really what it's asking is, okay, we've known this for a long time or we should have known it, what should follow? What follows from dispensing with that old source of values? How do you claim your own humanity, um, make yourself the source of your own values in the here and now? How do you deal with the consequences or take responsibility for what the culture um, has has claimed a long time ago or, or some elements of, of the culture, of course, because these things are disputed? So I start there and then I think about the way in which Diogenes all his life Diogenes, try again, um, in which Nietzsche was attracted to and played with um, cynicism without himself being in any sense a cynic. And you, you consider Nietzsche to be the great philosophical writer of a strategic cynicism. What do you mean by that phrase, a strategic cynicism? Why, why do you yeah. consider Nietzsche to be um, to be a great philosopher of a strategic cynicism? Yeah, so by strategic cynicism, I'm, I mean someone who recognizes what cynicism can do to a conversation, to upset it, to re-gear it, and who deploys that strategically, realizing that cynicism can't be the main or the only mode in which you operate. So what he's doing when he reaches for cynic styles of argument, or in, in the case of the of the crazy man, um, you know, one repeats one of these great scenes is to to deploy it to upset, mm -hmm. if you like, or um, reset the ground of, of his own reasoning or his own thinking, his own philosophical thinking. He's very interested in the untimeliness of cynicism, to use one of his favorite words in translation, um, something that's at once ancient and contemporary, and that's at once crude in the way it operates and can be quite profound in the questions it sets running. There's a lot of biographical evidence of Nietzsche's self-styling as a cynic, um, or rather as someone who picks up the pieces of ancient cynicism. He signs himself Diogenes Laetius. That's the, the third mm. century philosopher <laughs> who, who collects together the anecdotes of, mm. of the older Diogenes. There's a great sentence in a letter from Nietzsche's ghastly sister, it's a pity it's such a bad source, about him trying a little bit to imitate Diogenes in the tub. She says he wanted to find out how little a philosopher could get by with. And I think that, you know, there's one occasions in which, okay, let's give her credit on this occasion. It's it's a it's a really nice summary of what he's doing. So he's always playing in the gap between or the tension between the cynic move towards spareness, towards reduction to basics, and the cynic love of performance, of, of performative exaggeration. Mm. Um, think about Zarathustra going up and down the mountain, never sure whether he wants to be part of the of the flux of, of conversation in human life or apart from it, disgusted with it. Mm. Um, so it's not so much that I think he is a, a cynic, and indeed I don't think he's at all a cynic, but someone who can put his finger on cynicism's self-staged inadequacy. The fact that it's mm. it's really set in its ways. It's a sort of pre-packaged set of tools for toughening up the debate, for confronting convention, for signaling your own virtuous independence of authority, for being a free speaker. And that means that it's one lever among many for opening up questions about who's speaking, who are they speaking to, to what end, and above all, how freely are they speaking? And it's, you know, the, the, the dilemma of the cynic is they set a model for free speech, but nobody wants a model for free speech. As soon as it's modeled, it's not free. So you get yourself into that conundrum of mm. 
cynicism being in a in a hopeless double bind and the best you can say for it is that the, the great cynics know they're in that double bind bind and that's why they're always hamming it up and drawing drawing attention to their own performance being too much and that's yeah. why you consider his philosophy not to be adequate for uh for his cynicism i'm sorry not to be adequate for the live practice yeah, of philosophy he, yeah yeah, he knows that it's not adequate. It's just one lever or a strategy for freeing you up. It's a historic lever. It's one that's been used before, and he he clearly enjoys the comedy of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the 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 ways in which it gives you, as indeed in the Guy Davenport short story about Antisthenes, that it gives you um, the grounds for testing your own style, your own love of of language, of performance. So so going well beyond what the original cynics did in testing your own capacity for aggression and making trouble and so forth and, and not getting too, uh, not setting too much store by your ability to change anything. Mm. And what is the role of cynicism in his genealogy of morality? So it plays several roles. Um, first, uh, it helps to elaborate a fictional genealogy. So when we talk about the genealogy of, of morality, we're talking about the telling of a fictional story about the origins of our morality in which Nietzsche encourages us to think our, con our concepts of good and bad, of good and evil, stem not from God-given or any external sources of moral truth, but from our egoistic perception of what aids us or harms us. Now, that's, that's just one of the routes that he takes in, in the genealogy, but it really interests me because it's, it's essentially the cynic move to debase mm. um, the origins or the source um, of the way we think about good and evil. So... Those passages, again, are strongly marked by kinds of rhetorical ex um, excess, a sort of posturing extremism of the kind that, that marks the crazy man passage again. Secondly, the, the genealogical writings, so I'm also talking about um, works including human, all too human and beyond good and evil. They make occasional but, but strongly strategic use of the specific metaphor of debased coinage that we associate with Diogenes's Sinope. So... In the original story, stories, Diogenes is supposed to have left Sinope, um, his place of origin, where his father um, was producing the coinage because he and or his father are accused of having chipped away or, or in some way debased the currency. So he has to go into exile. And that becomes one of the favoured metaphors for what cynicism itself is always doing. It's taking the common coinage of morality and it's devaluing it. So Nietzsche reaches for that metaphor at various places in the genealogical writings but morality but he also starts playing with other kinds of metaphor that it's quite close to like chemical or alchemical um, debasement taking things back to the basic components so he's asking us to think about the hypothetical deductive way if you like that so much reasoning in psychology and philosophy and linguistics likes to entertain the idea of tracking back from sophisticated modern concepts to underlying or base ideas and there's an important thing to say here when I, when I talk about the difference between a strategic cynicism and actually being a cynic, the difference from cynic debasement and what Nietzsche is doing is that debasing things, taking them back or imagining a certain kind of base origin is just the first step towards what's really important to him, which is freeing up our capacity to liberate the will and um, give new creative form to our lives. As um, some people listening may know, Amir Srinivasan, um, philosopher based at All Souls here in Oxford, she's written really nicely of the vertigo effect of debunking arguments when they're well done, how they clear the ground, if you like, they encourage a change of, of outlook. Um, 
in chapter two, you go to talk. You, you talk about Thomas Carlyle and John Stuart Mill. So Thomas Carlyle wrote this um, uh, occasional discourse on the Negro question, and then John Stuart Mills responded to him. Can you talk about that uh, that part of the book, please? Sure. So this is an argument um, between, as you say, Carlyle and John Stuart Mill. So, so two of the great public moralists of the Victorian period, um, initially friends, but they fall out at this point um, and it takes a long time to repair the damage that's done. Um, it's an argument that plays out in the British and transatlantic press um, at the very end of the 1840s and into the early 1850s. When Carlyle, who's already well known as a great controversialist moralist, writes an essay, um, that's you've given its first title. I'm not going to give you, but you can intuit what its revised title is when he reprints it and cranks up the aggro level by changing Negro to the N-word. This used to be a set text on Victorian literature courses. I, I think almost everybody who studied Victorian literature before roughly the 1980s would have read it. And then it just slowly disappears. It disappears from the handbooks. It disappears from the introductory and, and often even the quite sophisticated collections of, of source texts. And that's in itself a really interesting probably intuitive set of decisions that various editors have taken that it's no longer a text people want to deal with. But it seemed to me such a crucial Victorian encounter with problems that are really troubling us now about the limits of controversialist speech and what we want to do about it, especially within the academy. So let me just say a word about what Carlyle's doing. He's, he's taking up a subject that he sees as a kind of litmus test for progressive morality in general. And the question he's asking is whether the abolition of slavery in 1833, so a good 16 years earlier, whether the abolition of slavery in the British West Indies has actually achieved as much good as British reformers like to think. And in his view, there's a lot of sentimental patting oneself on the back and saying, aren't we great? We've abolished slavery. So he paints a picture of the Negro people of Jamaica, idle, sitting in the plantations up to their ears in pumpkins, chewing on pumpkin and calling for higher wages from their masters. And I'm deliberately doing this at secondhand because the language throughout is aggravatingly, aggravatedly, indisputably racist. It's hugely problematic. Caricature racism deployed. Um, it's an essay that repeats one of Carlyle's great themes, the duty of work and the importance of work to a purpose of human life. His point is that liberation has not given the slaves of Jamaica work. And people who, who know the the history of the period know that what actually happened was that indentured, in effect, slave labor was brought in to replace the lost labor of slaves. You, you had just, you had a, you know, quite appalling um, exploitation of um, of people of color of various of various racial backgrounds. Um, goes on for a very long time, uh, making people idle and purposeless. And in his really provocative caricature, turning them into basely stupid animal-like beings. So. What he's doing is finding a really controversialist way of directing a series of cynical challenges to philanthropic sentimentalism, uh, to British political economy, so economic thinking about you know how you maximize the wealth of a country in general. And more widely, he's directing some pretty, you know, sharp weapons against the mismatch between the political rhetoric of progress in Britain and the reality on the ground. And the questions he's raising are really fundamental questions, less about free speech than about what kind of speech public discourse can and should tolerate. So the, the question is part well, one of the many questions one wants to ask of this hugely problematic um, couple of texts, um, the, the first text and the revised text, is just how aware was he of what he was 
setting loose. Um, you know, did he realise that he'd gone too far? Um, there, there is a clear answer to that question at the end of his life. He says quite openly that he had gone too far and he regretted it. That, you know, this had been a sort of love affair with sniggering, if you like, and he'd taken it too far. Really interesting word, sniggering. Um, what on earth was going on? And he said when he reached for that word and, and the word that it echoes. So it's really important to realise that even in his own time, the vast majority of his friends and his supporters thought he had gone way too far. He was overstepping what was possible within the genre or mode of satire. It's a debate that um, should help people, students, I think, to recognise just how well advanced the progressive reformist language of anti-racism had already gone so his activation of racism is very evidently that and mm. it's deeply offensive to most readers and what i do in the core of the chapter is to look at um well first i piece together carlisle's interest in the cynic legacy and the ways in which commentators at the time depicted him as a modern cynic so, so i make clear that this is explicitly what's mm. going on but my main focus is on how john stuart mill you know, the great liberal philosopher, the defender of free speech, um, is still a person we reached to when we want to defend free speech and and, and cast very broad, um, generous um, limits on it. Um, he takes up the responsibility for countering Carlyle in the public domain. And what he does is, is too long to go into here, but really it's a version of fact checking, the kind we've become very familiar with in the Internet. You know, trying to push back against misrepresentations of political demagogues everywhere or just, um, you know, bad, bad information in the public domain. But he's also struggling to find a language that has an equivalent punch or force or vigor to Carlyle's. So he's really aware that the language of correcting error and, you know, asking people to behave within reasonable bounds can be comparatively anemic. And that's the problem. You know, where, where do you find a language that can be as publicly efficacious as the language of provocation was in the first place. So it strikes me as a fantastically timely test case for how an earlier generation, much earlier generation of, of writers dealt with problems similar to mo to those many of us are facing at the moment. And and in the next chapter, you talk about, uh, sorry, chapter four, I guess, you talk about George Eliot and Max Ford, and you bring up this idea of cynic cosmopolitanism. What do you mean by cynic cosmopolitanism? How is it manifested in George Eliot or Max Ford's works. Um, we need to get the name right here. It's Ford Maddox Ford, complicated oh, name. It, it yeah. doubles in on itself and it's fine. <laughs> no, so, so he's one of the uh, people will know Parade's End probably as, as his best known novel, um, but a, a beautiful and an influential modernist generation on, two generations on from George Eliot and, and quite rude about her moralism. But the chapter identifies things that they have in common in their interest in, yes, Senate cosmopolitanism. So cynic cosmopolitanism takes its name from another of the famous sayings of Diogenes of Sinope. When, he's, when he was asked where he came from, remember he'd had to flee Sinope, um, having um, been involved in the debasing of its currency, he said to have given the answer, I am a citizen of the world, cosmopolites. Um, and you can say, well, that's what an exile would say, wouldn't they? You know, don't come from Sinope or anywhere else you might name. You know, I belong to the world. Um, it's been taken up over the years as an exemplary starting point for identifying oneself not with the narrow concerns of any one place of origin, so the city-state in, in ancient Greece, um, Athens often, um, or the nation-state more often today, um, but wanting to identify oneself much more generously or philanthropically with the concerns of all humanity. And what I'm doing in this chapter of the book is analysing the philosophical and the philological literature to try to figure out what Diogenes' terminology might have meant 
did it mean that he identified generously with all humanity or did it rather mean, as at least one critic, John Moles, has suggested that he was doing something actually more like post-humanism, um, identifying with the whole natural world, you know, down to the garlic bulbs? Um, equally, what should we make of the negative cast of what he was saying? I'm not a citizen of your Greek cities. Um, it's a way of resisting the coercion of the state and its institutions. I find it really interesting that one of the most influential books reviving interest in cynicism, Donald Dudley's A History of Cynicism, was written and published in the 1930s in the middle of the rise of warring nationalisms. It's a more recent uptake of this literature by Bruce Robbins and others. Um, uh, uh, in very recent years, that has been trying to think about negative cosmopolitanism or cynic cosmopolitanism as a way of toughening up some of the claims of recent, you know, pan-global humanitarian cosmopolitanism so that it can fit the reality of global injustice and war and economic exploitation. So George Eliot and Ford Maddox Ford, um, they're both deeply interested in 19th century versions of cosmopolitanism and its potential to help us mute and qualify the strength of national attachments and imperial claims. Um, in Eliot's case, on well, both of the cases, really, I'm really interested in how her thinking about these issues led her to stretch not just the human canvas of her fiction, so her, her um, best known late novel, Daniel Deronda, thinking extremely richly about um, how to stretch one's affiliation beyond the nation, beyond Britain, and think about um, deeper and, and wider affiliations um, with, with human endeavour. Um, strongly Zionist novel in that case, but it's asking wider questions about the loosening of the ties of nation. Um, and in Ford's, Maddox Ford's case, um, a later version of her same preoccupation with the aspects of human psychology that make it really difficult for us, even if we think we want to embrace a full cosmopolitanism, to shed, to shed the attachments to locality, to place, to what we've grown up with, you know, to our tribe in some sense. Mm. So the interest is partly in their politics, but it's also in their style and the way in which George Eliot, you know, she's everybody talks about her interest in human sympathy and compassion in developing the realist novel as a way of getting inside the alternative centre of self of, of other people, you know, seeing in common human suffering and, and you know, the, the, what we all share. The really late work lets that go. She just drops it. And what she starts doing instead is something much more abrasively confrontational. So the, the last work published in... Uh, uh, in her lifetime, impressions of Theophrast as such is a series of dialogues, including some fantastic cynic dialogues, testing uh, testing the values of the day, testing the common currency of thinking about everything from literature and art and theatre through to um, modern character, what it means to be a gentleman or a civilised person, that kind of thing. And, and you also make the case that to them, uh... This sort of cosmopolitanism was more a psychological matter rather than a moral one. Yeah, if that? you like, yeah, although they're both writing, you know, very strongly publicly directed, um, thinking about morality, Ford Maddox Ford's really interested in his move to writing propaganda during the war. Mm. They're seeking out a kind of personalized, internalized um, perspective on conflicting identifications and views and perspectives and self-images. So, so when they... When they take on cynicism, they, they're casting it really as a kind of testing of oneself and one's own values for their fitness for purpose. They're interested in that element of our psychology that's not uniform, 
but is you know prepared internally to ask ourselves hard questions or to tune up the aggression of our relation with the world and 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 see how far that might take us when 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 you know sympathy or softness or sentimentalism isn't going to do the work for us so so they're thinking about um especially in Ford Maddox Ford's case people who's um People whose situation in relation to others who are more brutal or um, manipulatively self-interested or, you know, creating really hostile conditions of operating um, produces a character in which cynicism can be an internal resource in a, in a really challenging um, environment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of great chapters in the book, but uh, my, my favorite one was the last chapter. Uh, in praise of idleness, cynicism, and humanities. That's where you talk about the idea of free speech and humanities. So can you talk, uh, you talk about Bertrand Russell and John Dewey. So can you tell us how they use the idea of cynicism to advocate free speech in university? Yeah, clearly what's happening there is I wanted to, in some ways, make explicit the way in which this interest in cynicism came out of the prior interest in the value of the humanities and in yeah. advocacy for the work of universities now. Um, so I kind of, as I as I shaped the book, I thought, well, has anyone else taken up these questions? And Bertrand Russell's essay in praise of idleness really gave me the material I wanted. And then finding the the subsequent um, detail of his um, his own difficulties in America around free speech and John Dewey's defence of him produced, you know, just exactly what I was looking for, really, um, with a contemporary turn to the argument at the end. Then, so Russell puts the case in in praise of idleness. He puts the case for the university as a special kind of institution which requires higher than normal tolerance for free speech. And he's also a really powerful advocate for the kind of freedom of speculation and freedom of just sitting there and ruminating and being paid to do it that often doesn't look to other people like real work. So especially Germaine, if you like, to a philosopher or a literary critic or a historian, someone who just sits there and seems to be not doing the real work of, as he puts it, um, you know, moving the matter of the earth from, <laughs> from one position to another, but it's just, you know, in the Rontier position, if you like, being paid to 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 do what gentlemen used to be able to do for free. But none of us or very few of us can afford to do now without being um, remunerated. Um, and then he gets himself in trouble. Um, because in 1940, he's appointed to a visiting position as professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. And a controversy arises in New York about his libertarian views on marriage and divorce and, and sex outside marriage. Um, in other words, he's, he takes a very libertarian position on what others would consider adultery um, and sex outside marriage. And the city um, moves to close down that visiting position. And John Dewey comes in in defense um, of Russell's position. It's interesting because Dewey is not an obvious ally for Russell, at least in terms of temperament. Um, and yet, um, and if you, I mean, Dewey wrote so much, it's hardly surprising, but there is some lovely writing about cynicism and, and what it does and his wider writing about ethics. But he essentially puts the case for casting very, very wide um, boundaries on free speech in which we need a normative support for the person who takes the anti-normative position. Okay, so it's a nice kind of circularity to it. In other words, we need to be able to accommodate people like Russell in a university if it's to do the job of testing our reasoning in the way that it should. So I work through the detail of that, and then I pick up um, Laura Kipner's um, 
whose book Unwanted Advances about the operation of Title IX in America um, and the, the increasingly difficult situation universities have found themselves in as they try to negotiate claims of unwanted sexual advances or, or worse on American campuses. Um, really, really difficult arguments. And I'm interested in how she tries to use that as her own test case for freedom of speech and freedom of intellectual inquiry in the university. And essentially what I'm saying about that book is that it's an uncomfortable read. It's it's not satisfied a lot of critics. It's um, people who like it would describe it as a brave book. Um, my own perspective is in a little bit more distance. I'm interested in how she picks up cynicism as a strategy of argument, but one she's really wary of using. So there's a repeated um, pattern in the book where she uses the phrase, a cynic might say in order to entertain the tough position that she's not absolutely taking on as her own, because to do so would probably be sheer folly in that really, really difficult, febrile environment. Um, and then really what I'm doing is looking at the various positions people have taken up reading that book, trying to figure out whether they're, you know, how much they like it, whether they think it's doing a good job, whether they think it's a, a useful intervention. And they're very unequal positions. The one that really interests me is the, in the end, is the position of a of an early reviewer of the book who writes from a, from the position so common now of a precariat member of the academy, someone not fully salaried who doesn't enjoy this the salaried protections that allow free speech, um, but therefore has to be more careful of what they say. So the, the idea of a constrained cynicism or a cynicism that that many people think it's important to be able to exercise, though not many people want to adopt it, seems to me to be in full force in modern America, perhaps perhaps unsurprisingly. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue to my next question, I guess. Uh, you're very well familiar with this culture why in the United States, the idea that one person, I think some of it is just exaggerated, blown out of proportion, that universities are, there's no free speech in universities, and there's this Catholic culture is just rampant everywhere. And I remember a couple of months ago, I was reading this article by the late Bruno Latour, uh, has critique run, uh, run out of run steam, steam, where he talks about, yeah, where hermeneutics of suspicion and how even right wing groups are using the idea of suspicion and skepticism, which was, which used to be, let's say, a, a, an indicator of the left uh, where they question things. It was this idea of negativity and I mean criticality. But anyway, do, do you generally think that uh, the idea of cynicism has been hijacked by right wing groups to curtail freedom of speech? Because they cast out, they say they are cynic about everything, about global warming, about vaccines. Yeah, I, d I don't think it's been hijacked. I think there's a lot of it about and that's hardly surprising. And, and really what I'm saying in this book is that I think we could have a much better argument about free speech mm. if we didn't just look, as we so often do, at the content of what people say, the positions they're taking. So much of the current debate is really, really impoverished because it's about one position versus yeah. another. It's about the reduction of a person's views to whether they support a particular moral position or don't support it. And I don't need to give examples because everybody will have in mind the ones that are important to them. What I'm saying is we've, if we do that, we're losing sight often of the ways in which arguments about public values aren't just exchanges of beliefs or opinions. Their performances, their self-characterizations based sometimes on a willingness to test all the claims that are being made against the reality of how people behave, what, what they really do, or you know, even if they think they hold such values, they take money for, for doing certain things or whatever it is. So I'm asking for um, a debate that I think would be better, richer, if it 
if it attended to the tone and the temper and the style of what's being said as well as the content. So cynicism, cynicism is so problematic at the moment because it's a way of tuning up the aggression of debate, especially the encounter with authority. And if you think cynicism is going wrong or there's too much of it about, often you think what's happening. I'm not a political scientist, so I get a little bit wary at this point. You can hear it in my own tone, I think. But, but I think what, what you're seeing is question marks over who is making the move to debase the, the conventional morality or the conventional value of concern. So let's take a problematic, but again, today prominent example, because he's just about to be indicted um, in the States, Donald Trump. If Donald Trump says he wants to drain the swamp and describes to the whole of the Washington political elite low motives of self-interest and you know a lack of concern for the people, is at that point making a classic cynic move. And the question for the cynic on the other side is whether actually his own position of authority or entitlement and so forth merits that. It's not really the position of an outsider um, with no interest, just testing the, the, the political scene, if you like, on behalf of the whole of humanity to our general good, do us to celebrate things. Yeah. It's, it's a move that's been adopted. In the main, my position has always been, I, I say it briefly at one point in the book or certainly in the surrounding publication materials, um, because I've so often asked the question at the point of writing, I don't see him as a cynic. I just don't see what he's doing in the main as strategic or as as part of a, a, a wider conversation looking to set or, or calibrate values more accurately. I think he's an intuitive operator. Sometimes the intuition goes towards cynicism. More often, it seems to go towards forms of narcissism. But then cynicism and narcissism have a long history of, of, of you know, belonging very close to one another. Um, I think what's really, really important is that people understand that cynicism is there, that they can identify what it is when they see that move to ascribe low motives, especially, um, and that they understand that 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 really, if you like, well, you know, that there are, in the domain of literature where I'm operating, in the domain of political thought, history of political thought, and history of philosophy, it has a really rich history that a lot of people are still aware of, but where it seemed worth reviving our accounts of it, um, where it is doing a rich kind of characterological work, where it's setting a certain kind of abrasive, free-speaking, confrontational, not very interested in, in, in debate, in dialogue, wanting to close things down rather than open up. But it is a performance and it knows its limits. And if nothing else, what it does is offer to toughen us up, even if that's internal, even if asking oneself the internal question, am I just in a, in this for what I get out of it? Can I stand the, the toughness of that question or if you like the the low the low hit of that question to myself? It's something we're doing anyway. It's good to have a vocabulary to describe it. We can't we can't operate always in the mode of full-throated, um, you know, full-hearted affirmation of what we're doing. It's it's a tough world that we operate in, and having vocabularies for a certain kind of toughness on our own behalf seems to me worth having. Uh, before uh, we come to the end of this conversation, is there any other uh, project or, or or book you're currently working on? Yeah, um, I, I guess everything seems connected when you're writing books, doesn't it? It's, it's not it's not <laughs> hard to see the links, although the surface topic is, is very different. So I'm thinking about the huge social pressure on care of the old. So I'm going back to ter the terrain of the first long book that I wrote at the intersection of literature and philosophy and thinking about the difference between living a long and a short life. 
And I'm really interested in the way in which positive ageing agenda is very strong in America, quite strong in Britain too, and I think really increasingly around the world. So the desire to stop negative thinking around old age and recognise agency, continued agency, continued contributions to society as long as they live, as long as we live. Um, that debate, debate has made it, or these, uh, that turn in the conversation, all to the good. I mean, nobody wants ageism. Nobody thinks it's, it's good to be preemptively negative about the end. But it's made it really, really difficult to talk about the huge political pressure and economic pressure and personal pressure that we're now experiencing with people who live we who live a great deal, we who can expect to live a great deal longer and, and therefore throw up huge problems of quality of life, um, the ability to decide for oneself, to preserve one's own freedom on the terms that one would want to, the the um, what we require in the way of help from other people. So the, this is one of the many reasons why so much philosophical talk in recent years has moved towards care and thinking about care. I want to write about and I'm particularly interested in what happens intergenerationally when you get people with different cultural and historical parameters from their upbringing, caring for others of an older generation so that you get really interesting dramas of, um, uh, for example, much of the popular fiction coming out in Britain at the moment. So not, it's not a huge amount that tackles the question, but a lot of it is really like reading Victorian <laughs> sentimental fiction in a new mould, where, say, the young carer, third generation or second generation Indian in Britain cares for an old lady um, in a very large house who has benefited from being a child, a late child of the Raj, and whose circumstances are now very difficult um, because her body has failed her um, and what happens is some kind of accommodation across the generation and the sentimental trope is always in this fiction that the old lady dies and leaves the big house to the carer as if you can imagine a kind of cultural restitution there's also a wider kind of cultural apology for for historical eras of the past so I'm interested in identifying the genres we work with um, I am as ever quite allergic to um, to sentimentalism as the only answer and I I trouble over the word care itself and just how constraining that word care can be because so much of what goes on is just really difficult um you know making other people's lives wanting to make one's own life um the right mix of care and concern and and liberty and and asking what the state should provide because the state needs to provide a very great deal more if it's not going to have an enormous number of human tragedies on its hands and I think so it's a I very timely. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a timely yeah. topic because where I am now in Australia, I, especially after the after COVID nineteen, and after uh, a, a, a general increase in the cost of living because of the war in Ukraine and also supply chain disruptions, I, it's almost every day I see something on television that, especially the older generation in Australia, they. Uh, the life expectancy is quite high. So there's a large yeah. population of pensioners who are really, really uh, feeling the impacts of the cost of living and the questions about the responsibility of government uh, yeah. is becoming more more, more prominent. And, and you can see yeah. more of that in the media as well. Yeah, and COVID obviously shone a, a really hard spotlight on the conditions of care in institutions where so many of them failed, um, old people, many of whom would have died sooner rather than later otherwise. But that's it's really clarified a lot of the thinking that needs to happen over what the the conditions of care and the, and the, the regard, the respect given to the really difficult 
hard daily work of caring for other people needs to be. Uh, hope to be able to talk to you about the book when it comes out. Uh, I'll keep my eyes open. Uh, may I know which publisher are you uh, thinking of? I, I haven't even got with? to that stage yet. Now I realize <laughs> I have a long history of publishing with OUP or on my doorstep. Yeah. Um, I don't know yeah. what I'll do with this one, but I'll let you know. Thank you. Cool. Thanks so much uh, for the Professor conversation. Helen, thank you very much for your time and uh, talking to us about your book on New Books Network. You're most welcome. Thank you.